Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe tomorrow is Friday. It didn't seem that long ago that we were just starting another week. You know, the weeks go by pretty quick. And it's not so much the older you get, but it's just time itself. No matter how busy it seems like I stay, which is a good thing, time is moving faster than sometimes I would want it to. But we've all got to make the most of the of the time we have each day on this um, in this world because we're not around forever but we got to make the most of what we've got but anyways here we are discussing Eric Dolan's brilliant beacons a history of the of the American Lighthouse and in this uh, podcast session we're going to be discussing a period of great uncertainty and controversy surrounding America's lighthouses you know like anything else in history, regardless of whether it's a person or a specific event, there has been uncertainty and, to some degree, controversy. What it really boils down to in the end is how resolution itself can be achieved. Well, resolution alone can mean a variety of things. It can sometimes mean getting rid of someone who has been inept for some time, to only to be replaced by someone else who is a much better fit for the um, job. So that's really what we're going to be learning about tonight, folks, is uh, someone who had been in the position perhaps longer than he should have been, but he necessarily wasn't a bad person. He actually did contribute some good to our uh, nation's young republic. However, the position he was placed in really was not the right uh, position for him. However, this was also a period of time where um, politicians uh, resorted to what's called patronage, doing um, political favors for one another. Political favors are not always a bad thing, but at the same time, if you don't have a lot of expertise in a particular area and you get appointed to serve in a in a position that uh, would require one to have knowledge, not just knowledge, but extraordinary knowledge about a particular matter, not just lighthouses as objects standing tall and proud, but all the inner workings that go into them. Well, so here we go with our first uh, leadoff question, because I'm sure many of you are itching to know who is this person that... Uh, ran lighthouse affairs for a long time who, um, yes, meant well, yes, had some good strengths, but in the long run was simply just not the right person for the job. Well, before we get to his name, let's. I'm going to ask you all this question. Did the U.S. Treasury Department have auditors whom at times oversaw the nation's lighthouse affairs? That answer is yes. Starting around 1820, when a fellow man named Stephen Pleasanton, the Treasury Department's fifth auditor, assumed his new role. And that new role was being that of uh, overseeing the nation's lighthouse affairs. Not just how the lighthouses were looking from the outside, but their inner workings. Inner workings meaning uh, lighting repairs uh, to you know, ensuring that the uh, lighthouses are operational and whether or not the structures, not only on the outside, but also the inside, need replacing. After all, structures, even if they look great on the outside, 
they don't stay in one perfect shape forever. You know, it, it's like, for example, take, you know, bridges. You know, we'd like to think bridges, you know, which our automobiles travel along, stay in place forever, that bridges themselves are, uh, what do you call it, immune from any, you know, cracks or structural deficiencies. Nope. Uh, even bridges themselves have to be replaced over time. As a matter of fact, it wasn't too long ago where I live that the uh, Huguenot Bridge uh, was replaced. Uh, the original bridge itself was built back in the late 40s, and it finally was replaced after 60-some years, but the new bridge is uh, spectacular. But there again, folks, you know, it's all about making the right investments. You know, if you really care about something, you're going to make sure that the um, structure itself not only remains in good condition in the present, but how it's going to look between 10 to 20 years from now. So I should point out that there were multiple auditors within the Treasury Department, and each auditor himself was given a numerical ranking. So therefore, that's why Stephen um, Pleasanton has been refer is referred to as the fifth auditor. In other words, there were other auditors ahead of him, but yet he's been given this uh, unique um, position. And I think it's a good thing to find out here momentarily how he got this position. After all, as I said earlier, it was probably attributed to patronage, you know, political favors for doing good work. But what exactly was that good work? Well, before we get to that, what is there to know about Stephen Pleasanton? Well, for starters, he was born in 1776. Well, 1776 is quite a special year. I mean, after all, 56 men uh, came together to sign the Declaration of Independence. They signed their lives away, knowing that they risked it all, knowing the fear that some of them could have been hung in their own hometown for doing what they did. So, yes, 1776 is an important year, in large part because we finally severed ties with the mother country. Now, uh, we go beyond 1776 into Stephen Pleasanton's life. What, what I do know is that not much has been um, discussed, not just in this book, but in general. Most historians don't really know much about his life after he was born, except they do know that he started out working as a clerk with the State Department. So he probably had to have been in his early 20s when he got this um, job. But he was also part of the government's relocation switch, that is, going from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. in 1800. And um, who, uh, who was the first president, folks, that actually uh, resided in Philadelphia? Most of us would like to say, in Washington, D.C., uh, most of us would like to say Thomas Jefferson. It turns out John Adams, his predecessor, was the first who actually, um, he didn't live in Washington, D.C. the entire time of his presidency. It was between Philadelphia and D.C., but he was the first to occupy the uh, White House and what we know now know as our modern-day nation's capital, Washington, D.C. However, um, if there is one thing Stephen Pleasanton was best known for, and I didn't know this until I read, uh, read the book a few years back, but also rereading it helped, um, helped me out. Stephen Pleasanton was best known for his heroism during the War of 1812. It was not from a militaristic approach. 
Rather, he was someone who was in the right place at the right time on the day of August 24th, 1814, a day which British forces would inflict terror upon our, na our young nation's republic that was never seen before. Well, I can tell you this much, folks. Um, you probably heard me mention the book uh, Through the Perilous Fight. Uh, those of you who were with me uh, last, last summer when I discussed uh, Steve Vogel's book Through the Perilous Fight from the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner and the Six Weeks that Saved the Nation, August 24th, 1814, we're already uh, three years into this uh, war that um, the United States really should have thought better about in terms of declaring war on England because they were so concerned about going northward and um, invading Canada and trying to liberate Canada from British rule that the Madison administration forgot to um, defend its own um, capital. In other words, uh, the Secretary of War, John Armstrong, um, pretty much uh, along with Madison's, James Madison's ineptitude, allowed for the uh, debacle, not just a debacle, but allowed for the unthinkable to happen. Many in Washington, D.C. were alone were uh, shocked at Madison's administration for not uh, wanting to uh, fortify uh, the city. So, to put it in a nutshell, August 24th, 1814 would be like the equivalent of a 9-11 that happened on September 11th, 2001, along with December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. So, it is on this day, August 24th, 1814, that the British uh, make their way after uh, routing American troops at Bladensburg, Maryland, which is about six to ten miles just on the outskirts of D.C., the British pretty much have a clear path into the wilderness. And that's what Washington, D.C. folks was referred to as. It was an open wilderness, a jungle that had no boundaries, but yet in the midst of a terrible crisis, Washington, D.C. is not fortified. So Stephen Pleasanton knows that it's just a matter of time before the British are going to uh, pretty much ransack the White House and ransack the Capitol, along with any other governmental building they can get their hands on. Stephen Pleasanton knows that there have to be documents that are sensitive, which must be saved. So he oversees all critical state papers be placed in linen bags. And when I say critical papers, how about, you know, top secret governmental papers this day that are, say, State Department related? James Monroe is Secretary of State at this time. And had he been Secretary of War, um, I do believe Washington, D.C. would have been better fortified. We may not have had um, something that rivaled uh, Pearl Harbor or 9-11 of uh, 2001. If you read that book, you will definitely understand where I'm coming from uh, through the perilous fight. But it's not just um, top-level uh, government documents that Stephen Pleasanton is uh, overseeing um, the securing process on. He knows that inside the uh, White House, there is the uh, Declaration of Independence document, the Articles of Confederation, which was the precursor to the U.S. Constitution, and the U.S. Constitution document itself. Those documents get uh, placed in linen bags as well. 
Where do all these documents go? Stephen Pleasanton oversees that the documents themselves get taken to Leesburg, Virginia, which is about 35 to 40 miles west of uh, Washington, D.C. And if those of you who aren't familiar with Virginia and want to know where Leesburg is located, well, obviously it's not far from Washington, D.C., but it's located in uh, Loudoun County. And these documents remained in Leesburg until it was deemed safe for their return to Washington. Now, can you now it's bad enough that the British burned the White House. It was bad enough that the British burned the Capitol. Now, keep in mind folks, the Capitol building in uh, 1814 is not the same building that we see today. The White House as we know today was not the same White House from 1814. And when you in if any of you all read the book Through the Perilous Fight, you will uh, be horrified at how the British went about um, burning these um, buildings. But thank heavens, Stephen Pleasanton was the, was the right man, or let alone the right person at the right time, who oversaw the transfer of these documents. Had he not been there, who's not to say that somebody else would have um, overlooked an important document? Who's not to say that our that the Declaration of Independence would have been burned? Remember, folks, we don't have um, gift shops during this day and time where people can buy a replica of what the Declaration of Independence looked like from 1776 or the Constitution from 1787. We don't have any of that stuff. That's not going to come, probably not for at least well over another hundred years. So once again, thank heaven Stephen Pleasanton was in the right place at the right time to oversee that all these documents were securely transferred to a safe place. Whom appointed uh, Mr. Pleasanton to become the fifth auditor in March of 1817? That answer is uh, James Monroe. Shortly after he himself became our nation's fifth president. Did the position of fifth auditor have anything to do with lighthouses? Let's think long and hard about this, folks. When I think of auditors, I think of um, those, you know, auditors basically to me are people who um, are involved with accounting practices. In other words, they are making sure that, um, that the books are, for any company, that the books themselves are, are in good shape. In other words, that, uh, that there has not been any kind of improper use of funds or anything that would um, raise a red flag to where perhaps you'd have to have a forensics team come in to investigate um, any uh, misuse of money. So the answer is no. The position of Fifth Auditor itself revolves around managing financial affairs of the State Department, the Post Office, to all affairs involving Indian trade. So, in a nutshell, Mr. Pleasanton is an accountant, or I should say a government accountant. And in 1820, three years after James Monroe is sworn in as our nation's fifth president, Mr. Pleasanton earns the following title, Superintendent of Lighthouses. You know, on one hand, his accounting uh, experiences... In terms of financial affairs, I think would be a great asset to um, lighthouse funding, or not just funding, but to overall um, 
proper financial practices in ensuring that lighthouses are funded. However, it's one thing to have uh, accounting uh, smarts or financial smarts, but if you don't know the true inner workings and, um, and the ins and outs of what goes into lighthouse operations on a day-by-day -day basis, once again, this is not a good position for him to be in. And it's very fair to say that Mr. Pleasanton did not have any knowledge about lighthouses along with maritime issues. His strengths all revolved around accounting to financial affairs, whose goals, or let alone purposes, were to protect government's wallets, including cutting costs when deemed necessary and proper. Okay, well, you know, it's, all, it's always important not to uh, deficit spend. At the same time, you also want to make sure that you do have enough of a surplus or just enough of, of a, some lump sum money to ensure that, okay, if the lighthouse, if lighthouse X, Y, and Z are not functioning properly, that we could still set aside some money or let alone raise taxes so that the, t that the revenue generated from raising taxes, for example, would go towards... Um, improving the um, existing conditions in the lighthouses that are most needed. You know, I take a look at um, Virginia, for example. This is going to sound crazy. Of course, I live in Virginia. I mean, that's not crazy. But in Virginia, we're not allowed to deficit spend. In other words, if we are in the red, we just have to find ways to cut spending. But we can't just spend money like there's no tomorrow or just simply spend money that we don't have. One of the reasons why Virginia has usually done so well for so long is because given the state constitution's prohibiting of deficit spending, we've been able to earn um, AAA, high AAA bond ratings for, um, for quite some time. Now, I'm not saying that states who deficit spend all the time are bad, but at the same time, I am glad to know that there are states out there who have some unique rules in play to where surpluses are probably more prevalent than deficits, but if there are deficits, at least there are guidelines on what you can and cannot do spending-wise. So for Mr. Pleasanton, yes, I can understand that he wants to protect the government's wallets. In other words, he doesn't want to see ballooning deficits and cut costs where it's deemed necessary. But at the same time, if you cut costs too much, then uh, departments whom are lacking money, how are they expected to uh, make up for uh, lost revenues? Well, remember, folks, we don't have a Federal Reserve at this time. But the Federal Reserve itself isn't going to be established until 1913. So we still have at least a little over 90 years to go before we have a modern-day Federal Reserve system that we know today. Now, from 18, starting in 1820, how many lighthouses were there nationwide? I'll give you a number. It was between 50 and 60. The answer is 55. There are 55 lighthouses nationwide. And Henry Pleasanton, I'll just tell you this, or... Stephen Pleasanton, rather, pardon me. I will tell you this right now. He, he will hold the title of fifth auditor for 32 years. That is from 1820 to 1852. So that means that during his 32-year reign in this position, 
He has served under Presidents James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Zachary Taylor, and to Millard Fillmore. So that means he will have served under eight presidents. And in that time, it is fair to say that he will have uh, seen a, he will have seen a lot. But his method of management during the 32 years that he holds this title, not just a fifth auditor but superintendent of lighthouses, his method of management will remain stagnant. In other words, it will it won't change. So, how does Mr. Pleasanton go about um, game plan strategy with the lighthouses? Well, his office issued design plans for lighthouses, which were then sent to customs collectors. And I will admit that the customs collectors themselves were very powerful people. They were the ones that did more than just collect taxes. But they um, were the ones whom um, would determine where lighthouses would be located. The collectors would put put plans in play out for um, those whom were willing to um, engage in bidding. In other words, um, bid for the highest amount or what you call the re most reasonable um, sum of money to go about uh, constructing uh, a lighthouse. Mr. Pleasanton often chose the lowest bidders for the job. So in other words, <laughs> I hate to say this, but he's, he's a tightwad. He's not afraid to spend the money, but at the same time, he's not. A, he's very hesitant and skeptical about doing things differently. Is it possible? Is it just possible? Could this also revolve around the lights themselves? Perhaps, and we'll find that out here soon. Collectors themselves, or I should say customs collectors, often oversaw the selection and purchase of a building site. The custom collectors themselves had the power of nominating, hiring, paying, to firing lighthouse keepers. The um, superintendent of lighthouse affairs was the one who um, appointed the um, keepers, but it was the customs collectors that had the power of nominating, hiring, paying, to firing them. The collectors also arranged for repairs on the lighthouses. It's fair to say that the collectors might as well have been working for what we now know in today's time as the Department of GAO, the General Accounting Office, which is one of uh, Congress's uh, main, um, we call it, uh, main arms for um, budgeting and accounting. Of course, there is the Congressional Budget Office, but the GAO is the General Accounting Office. So the customs collectors might as well have been the equivalent of a General Accounting Office for, this, for the uh, 19th century. Whereas collectors, were whereas collectors themselves arranged for repairs, contractors, on the other hand, were hired to supply oil to the lighthouses along with installing lighting fixtures. Well, there you have it, folks. You know, contractors, like think about it in today's time, they come into someone's home, uh, they um, go about um, installing, you know, appliances, uh, fixtures. So it's fair to say that the contractors in the 19th century were doing many similar things to what they would do in people's homes in today's time. 
you know, Mr. Pleasanton obviously relies a lot on um, on uh, on a handful of people, most notably like collectors and uh, contractors. But whom else did Mr. Pleasanton rely heavily upon for lighthouse affairs in general? We talked about this fella uh, from the previous podcast. His name was Winslow Lewis. You know, he was the man whom um, devised his own version of an argon lamp. You know, the argon lamp was named after a French uh, physicist, uh, Aimé Argand. Whereas Aimé Argand's lamps were um, had parabolic reflectors, which where the light concentrated on uh, one section, to where to where there was enough luminescence to where uh, brightness would prevail, uh, regardless of how um, regardless of how uh, strong the beam itself was. Winslow Lewis's uh, argon lamps had um, spherical reflectors. And while they did serve um, a purpose, they weren't as consistent as the parabolic reflectors. The spherical reflectors moved up and down at any given moment to where uh, visibility was always at a 50-50 standstill. But anyways, uh, Mr. Pleasanton went on to develop a solid relationship with Winslow Lewis, whom at this time was considered America's foremost leading lighthouse expert. And it's and rightfully so, after all, we've got to give Mr. Lewis credit for uh, devising a new lamp that did, in fact, cut oil costs down. But at the same time, even that alone could not compare to what the Europeans were already um, doing at this time. And I'll mention a little bit more of that here soon. But what I do know is that when Mr. Pleasanton and Mr. Lewis developed this solid relationship, uh, Mr. Uh, Lewis is very um, knowledgeable on maritime issues, and Lewis himself won a majority of contracts involving lighthouse illumination. So it does pay well to have connections with someone else who perhaps is far more knowledgeable than you are, but at the same time, it doesn't automatically mean that... Um, that uh, things are going to get better over time. We do know that up to 10 clerks worked for Mr. Pleasanton, but very few of them focused solely on lighthouse issues. Well, if that's the case, then why have these clerks? Well, it's fair to say that these clerks are doing other things like, you know, accounting practices, which is Mr. Pleasanton's um, strength. But when it comes to uh, cutting costs and putting um, the greater nation's interest at par, it's fair to say that Mr. Pleasanton's business approach is one that only benefits his needs, whereas the nation's interests, along with mariners' needs, when it comes to lighthouse affairs, are all kept at a distant second or let alone even further. So here we are now moving into the mid-1830s. Come the mid-1830s, how many new lighthouses got built? Well, I do know that by 1820, as mentioned earlier, there were 55. But come the mid-1830s, folks, 150 
more new lighthouses are getting are getting built. So that means on top of 55, that means we now have just over 200 lighthouses. The majority are located along the New England and Mid-Atlantic states coasts, but now lighthouse expansion is venturing into places further south past Savannah, Georgia, most notably along the coasts of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. When I think of lighthouses in Alabama, take Mobile, which is along the coast, and Mobile is not far from uh, Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Mississippi, uh, how about Biloxi, Pascagoula? And as for Louisiana, well, how about New Orleans? So there you have it, folks. We've got, um, there are major cities in the south, past Savannah, Georgia, that are now um, becoming uh, big playmakers in the, uh, in the south along the Gulf of Mexico who need to be able to ensure that their ships are coming in and out of the uh, harbors safely. And if you want to go further south uh, during this time, a handful of lighthouses are being built along the Florida Keys, uh, most notably in Key West, around uh, especially the dry Tortugas area, um, in areas out in other parts of the Keys as well. And as our population is growing, not just in New England and the Mid-Atlantic, you know, people going uh, southward into what we now know as Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, which are now admitted into the Union, Florida as well. The coasts need lighthouses. And besides the south, other lighthouses um, that, um, that are being built, how about along the Great Lakes? You know, the Great Lakes are vital, folks. Um, after all, all five Great Lakes are, are going to need to be home to lighthouses to ensure that ships um, can sail smoothly in and out of um, harbors, um, what, regardless of whether it's Superior, Michigan, Huron, Erie, Ontario. The, lake, the, the ships, or what we might refer to later on down the road as Lakers, they're going to need uh, lighthouses to guide them. So the first lighthouse built along the Great Lakes, or let alone the first lighthouses, were on Lake Erie in Buffalo, New York, and then Prescue Isle in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, another one, for example, was in 1822, the Rochester Harbor Lighthouse on Lake Ontario. And as I said before, I'll say it again here, lighthouses along the Great Lakes waters were essential considering just how unpredictable weather conditions often were and what it meant to a ship's safety. And history has proven that many of times along the Great Lakes, the weather might look calm during the daytime, but even in the midst of daytime, nothing is certain. And for those of you who were uh, part of the uh, podcast series I did on uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the ship that sunk um, off of uh, about 10 miles near its final destination on Lake Superior in um, November of 1975, when it turned when it with regards to unpredictable weather conditions, well, the Edmund Fitzgerald herself dealt with unpredictable weather conditions in a short amount of time, that sadly um, took the lives of 29 men. And to this day, while there are theories, some good theories that um, that many uh, believe are responsible for the ship's sinking, they've never really been able to pinpoint a true definitive answer. Now, three years later, um, after 
the uh, lighthouse in Rochester, New York, being the Rochester Harbor Lighthouse, 1825. That's very important because that's the year that the Erie Canal officially opens. The Wedding of the Waters, does that ring a bell to any, any of you, my listeners, who were um, with me when we did uh, Peter L. Bernstein's uh, Wedding of the Waters, um, the Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation? linking the Atlantic Ocean to the inland waterways, Hudson River, all the way up into the Great Lakes. Well, in 1825, the Erie Canal is officially open, linking the Hudson River in Albany, New York, to Lake Erie and Buffalo, which led to an increase in shipping along the Great Lakes, but also led to building of lighthouses, and most notably in 1826 at Stony Point, New York, which is just uh, south it's just before uh, West Point. This lighthouse, for example, kept ships away from the rocks. So think about that, folks. You know, going up the Hudson, believe it or not, you do need to have um, some, uh, some form of um, safety lighthouse. So no matter where we're going, folks, lighthouses are around us, and they are serving um, a proper um, reason. Okay, here's one right here. I don't expect you all probably to remember, who, know who these people are, but I'm going to tell you. Why are Edmund and George Blunt important figures? Well, for starters, they are brothers whom in 1826 took over their father's business being a periodical, being a periodical known as America's Coast Pilot which provided mariners with sailing directions, charts to accurate descriptions of the nation's lighthouses. Secondly, the Blunt brothers developed strong ties to mariners whom regularly expressed their displeasure behind America's lighthouses as they had become more and more inferior to British and French structures. And what do I mean by inferior? How about the, the current uh, state of lighting? In other words, yes, we the lights are visible, but is it fair to say that the lighting system of lighthouses in France and England, for example, are far more superior to America's? Absolutely. And if that's the case, one of the reasons perhaps why our lighthouses are becoming inferior is because of the government's lack of proper funding to maintain them. So in the early 1830s, Edmund Blunt visited France and met a fella by the name of Leonore Fresnel, whose family revolutionized lighthouse lighting in Europe. And when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to talk about um, a unique lens that truly did revolutionize not just lighting in Europe, but will uh, revolutionize lighting in America. But despite the Blunt brothers' efforts in going before Congress to confronting Mr. Pleasanton and Winslow Lewis regarding the state of America's lighthouses, progress remained at a virtual stalemate. However, before Andrew Jackson left office in 1837, naval officers were grouped into districts where they would inspect lighthouses to reporting all findings. Now, this was a good step up in the right direction. I'll give uh, our government credit for this. But by 1838, a report confirmed that most lighthouses 
while they were in good condition, 40% on the other hand faced problems that ranged from weak foundations, poor ventilation, to lamps with bent or dull refractors. 40% folks, that's not at the halfway point, but it's very close. So, okay, 100%, you know, is how far we can go on the percentage scale. If, let's do some fraction work here, folks. If you do 60% out of 100%, and you take 40% as well, 60-40, that's three-fifths. So if 40% of our lighthouses by 1838 are facing um, problems that I just mentioned, that means two-fifths of the lighthouses are not doing well. Three-fifths might be doing well, but who's not to say that within a short period of time they could face problems as well. So it's a 60-40 scenario that could, eat, that could very well make or break. Which of the two modern-day political parties that we know of today, of course, our two modern-day political parties in the United States, they've been around for a long time, Democrats, Republicans, but which of the two modern-day political parties was formed first? And the first one was formed in 1828. The answer is the Democratic Party. And for those of you who are wondering, when did the Republican Party get formed? In 1854. But the Democratic Party was formed first. And why is that important? Well, for starters, Democrats ran Congress, both houses of Congress, for a great period of time. But secondly, they opposed funding for public work projects geared towards lighthouse construction to building canals. So, of course, you know, you've got Democrats in the North, but you've got a lot of Democrats in the South. I say it's, it's very fair to say that the vast overwhelming of um, political, uh, of our politicians from the Southern states are Democrats. And when I was on the air discussing uh, Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the making of a great nation, you know, the state of New York had to fund the Erie Canal from the state alone. In other words, New Yorkers wanted the federal government to fund the Erie Canal. But here's a problem. Southerners don't want it. Why would Southerners want, it, want a canal system that's not going to benefit them? Uh, a canal system to them only uh, favors those living in the northern states who, um, whose economies are manufacturing, mercantilism, industrial. The South is an agrarian economy. So by opposing public works projects like the ones involving uh, canal construction to uh, lighthouse um, improvement works, Southern Democrats especially didn't want one branch of commerce overpowering another. So there you have it. They didn't want mercantilism, manufacturing to industrialization, superseding their lifestyle being in an agrarian, a.k.a. plantation economy. Lastly, many in Congress were well connected to Stephen Pleasanton where they tolerated his business practices, including existing lighthouse protocol procedures. So, hey, if you're happy with the status quo, why would you want to um, change anything about it to where you end up hurting people's feelings 
and then everybody else gets so upset to where they don't want to be your friend anymore. Well, I, I believe it's fair to say that Stephen Pleasanton doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. After all, he's probably given a lot of political favors to politicians, most notably Southern Democrats, who do not want their Northern counterparts to benefit, given in part because their commerce, their form of commerce, would supersede theirs. Is it safe to say that there's a, there, there's a lot of sectional uh, tension? Think about it. The more states we're adding to the union, we're having to make compromises. For every free state you get added into the union, you're going to have to add a slave state as well. Because if you have more free states versus slave states, the greater the chance that a, um, a war could break out from within. As unfortunate as it w would be over time that the Civil War did break out, it could have broken out perhaps a lot sooner had it not been for men, most notably like Henry Clay, who um, was a native to Virginian but spent most of his years in Kentucky. But Henry Clay was the one who brokered many of compromises that probably did keep our union together intact. And the last one that he was um, known for having done was the uh, Compromise of 1850, which in the end was ultimately the last attempt to keep slavery out of politics. What's significant about 1852? Well, what is significant about 1852 is the following. Stephen Pleasanton is finally forced out. And to many up north, or those who are heavily involved in the maritime industry, this is a huge blessing. They don't wish the guy harm. It's just the fact that uh, for about 30 years or just over, America's lighthouses have been uh, neglected. They are behind um, the most uh, up-to-date uh, technology, but, they, but leadership is sorely uh, needed. New leadership, that is, new blood. So, a new light, lighthouse board convenes, which brings about new leadership that led to reinventing America's lighthouses through instituting a new set of lens devised by a Frenchman named Augustin Jean Fresnel two decades earlier in the 1830s. And that's whom we're going to be learning about when I'm on the air again with you all next. Whereas Stephen Pleasanton had no lighthouse knowledge... New leaders after him were the exact opposite, like Joseph Henry, a former Princeton professor, to a founding director and secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, to A.D. Bach, whom had a hand behind developing the telegraph. Well, folks, um, I'm glad to see that um, there's new leadership uh, being brought in, because um, if these people haven't aren't coming in now, who's to say that um, that whoever would be coming in after them would be any better? I can already tell for a fact that um, Joseph Henry definitely knows what he's doing. It's not just so much that he was a former Princeton professor, but he obviously has enough knowledge to redirect our lighthouses to know, okay, while Mr. Winslow's invention early on was a great step, it's not the direction we need. It was great for its time, but we should have done things differently a long time ago. 
this is where we're going to have to reinvent the wheel, and this is where we're going to have to make our lighthouses better, not just going forward in the present, but for the future. Well, folks, we've uh, covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And when I am on the air again next, we will be discussing about Jean Augustin Jean Fresnel and how he has set the bar not just for Europe, but how he can help transform Americans in their own country to take his practices and put them into use for America's brilliant beacons. After all, our brilliant beacons need some reinventing. And they and I will tell you this, they will get the reinvention they need. But we're going to learn more than just Auguste and Jean Fresnel himself. We're going to learn some things about Fresnel lenses that perhaps many of you all don't know about. Now, I will tell you this, when my wife and I went to Maine, it'll be seven years ago this summer, I learned a great deal about the Fresnel lenses that I didn't know before. And I must tell you, when I saw um, some of these uh, Fresnel lenses up close, you talk about state-of-the-art lenses. They're not dinky-looking. They are big. But they are big for a good reason. After all, there are no two lights that are alike. In other words, each lighthouse has its own unique form of lighting, but with the Fresnel lenses, there are no two Fresnel lenses that are alike. So, continue to fasten your seatbelts. I look forward to being back on the air again soon, and when I'm on the air, we're going to be discussing about the Fresnel lenses and the man who got it all started, Augustin Jean Fresnel. Take care and stay safe.